Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Avery Ching, co-founder and CTO at Aptos Labs. We talk about his time working at Facebook, which became Meta, and specifically his work on blockchain projects there. We then talk about how this group split off to form different companies like Mistin and Aptos, and what Aptos has taken with them in the creation of this new organization. He shares with us the state of Aptos, how the project differentiates itself, and what it's like building in the current landscape. Now, before we kick off, I do want to direct you to the ZK Jobs Board. There you'll find jobs from top teams working in ZK. So if you're looking for your next opportunity, be sure to check it out. And if you're a team looking to find great talent, be sure to add your job there as well. I've added the link in the show notes. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Anoma's first fractal instance, Namada, is launching soon. Namada is a proof-of-stake L1 for interchain asset agnostic privacy. Namada natively interoperates with fast finality chains via IBC and with Ethereum via a trustless two-way bridge. For privacy, Namada deploys an upgraded version of the multi-asset shielded pool circuit, otherwise known as MASP, which allows all assets, fungible and non-fungible, to share a common shielded set. This removes the size limits of the anonymity set and provides the best privacy guarantees possible for every user in the multi-chain. The MASP circuit's latest update enables shielded set rewards directly in the shielded set a novel feature that funds privacy as a public good. Follow Namada on Twitter, at Namada, to learn more, and join their community on Discord, discord.gg forward slash Namada. So thanks again, Anoma. And now, here's our episode. So today I'm here with Avery Ching, co-founder and CTO at Aptos Labs. Welcome to the show, Avery. Hi, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. So in today's episode, we're going to be exploring Aptos, which is a project that I don't know very much about. I have interviewed folks from the Mistin team, and I know that both the Mistin and Aptos team came out of Meta and had originally been on sort of the Libra project. So I'm excited to explore that. Before we do it, though, Avery, let's hear a little bit about your background. What kind of got you started and on the path towards Aptos? I'd love to talk about my background. I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. I lived there for the better part of my life, and I went off to college at Northwestern and studied computer science and electrical engineering. Uh, during that time, I also did a PhD uh, under uh, Professor Chattery, Alok Chattery, in high-performance computing. So I spent a lot of time in different national laboratories, such as Los Alamos, Sandia, and Argonne, um, doing things around uh, supercomputing and parallel file systems specifically. And there's something called MPI, or Message Passing Interface, which is a really interesting way that and super flexible way that people can program supercomputer software um, very flexibly across different architectures, different kinds of uh, network interconnects to support the largest scientific applications in the world, such as protein folding, world simulation, um, matrix factorization, all kinds of cool stuff. After my PhD, I went to work at Yahoo for four years in the area of data infrastructure. I was working on what was called the webmat at that time. It was a after the crawling phase of, of going through the world's uh, internet sites, uh, there's an analytics phase where we do analysis, um, data derivation around domains and, and insights, and um, worked on something called Apache Giraffe, which is a large-scale uh, graph processing infrastructure, an open-source project uh, that allowed us to do things like page rank, matrix factorization, and triangle counting. 
In 2011, I went made my way over to Facebook to work on data infrastructure. That was the team that was kind of just kicking off things around Hadoop. Uh, at that time, it was a very exciting space that no one had kind of scaled Hadoop to the size of petabytes and exabytes. And not just Hadoop, but of course, any kind of general purpose computing, such as Hive, which is kind of SQL language put on top of Hadoop. I worked on, I got a good time to work on uh, Spark and um, did, uh, uh, batch scheduling and uh, pipeline management and, and derivation, as well as taking Apache Giraffe and turning it into the full-time product that powered many different graph applications within Facebook, a, a social media company. What is Hadoop? I actually don't know what that is at all. Uh, no worries. So Hadoop is a map, MapReduce uh, processing infrastructure. If you think about um, my background, again, with parallel computing, we have MPI, which is a very uh, low-level customized way you can do message passing between different processes and even things like RDMA, remote direct memory access, uh, to support, again, getting the best performance out of these machines that can do simulation and, and run hundreds of thousands or millions of cores uh, for weeks or months at a time before they kind of generate an output. But that's complicated. And in fact, it takes programmers a long time to write these codes. They're super hard to maintain. Mm. Uh, there's a very small set of developers in the world that can write those type of applications and maintain them. Hadoop is an idea where you take this thing called BSP, which is both synchronous parallel processing, uh, and apply it in a, in, a, in a stricter sense, where you can do things, uh, the map operation, you can take any kind of input data and transform it and reduce, which takes those input things and, and kind of consolidates them. So it supports some core primitives of parallelism, uh, but kind of limits you a little bit to what you can do. But at the same time, by that limitation, it allows a broader set of programmers to be able to access that framework and write different kinds of applications. One of the most key applications in that space was Hive, a SQL implementation on top of MapReduce, as supported querying you know, billions in, or trillions of rows and producing you know, petabytes of data mm. uh, at a time. And then this is the kind of infrastructure that powered uh, companies like Meta and Google and um, you know, LinkedIn and others, uh, all their analytics pipelines in the, in the future. So um, it's really cool to see the way that programming models can actually impact the way the developers uh, have uh, flexibility and expressiveness and ability to, to write applications in a meaningful way in time to market. Uh, that's what we kind of see happening in the blockchain space as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, yeah. So that's when you talk about like message passing in this context. I've done interviews where we talked about message passing in the blockchain context. Is it the same thing? Or are we dealing with sort of like a different level? It is. I, I think there's some similarities here, which I find fascinating. Um, okay. So in, in the kind of something like MPI or message passing interface, the idea is that any process can send messages to others at any given time. And I, like, as I mentioned, this provides kind of any kind of parallelism you would dream possible. Um, you just need to kind of construct the models you're looking for. One of those I mentioned was BSP, which is super interesting, but you could do asynchronous type messaging, uh, passing. There's something in uh, MPI called collective operations where processes will collectively get together, decide what to write, and then share that information in a way that optimizes for the writing patterns, such as batch uh, writing chunks of data to storage, which is much more efficient than writing little pieces of data to storage. Mm-hmm. And so this is something we see kind of in the blockchain space as well, where you know, the, the APIs available to you uh, could be very different. Some of them are very simple and straightforward, uh, like Move, I would argue, uh, which allows you to constrain a programmer to not have to make so many mistakes. Thinking about the way that a coin operates versus an integer representing a coin, as an example, is a constraint uh, on a programmer. But it makes, them, you know, it makes it much more accessible and much more, less likely you're going to have errors in, in your contract when you write those. When it comes to message passing specifically, though, there are ideas around what we call asynchronous move, mm-hmm. which we are, we're super excited about. The idea that move itself can pass messages between different actors in the system. And that can be an interesting way to think about parallelism in the, in the blockchain context, kind of similar to the way I think about it in the high-performance computing context. Mm. How long were you at Facebook slash Meta? 
I was there for over a decade from Whoa. 2011 to about 2021. Yeah. Oh my God. Like the time frame for that at that company must have been very special. Like 2011, Facebook was the pinnacle. And like, I think everyone wanted to work there. So you were working like this highly competitive, like very, I bet like just amazing people. That said, like the reputation in our space is definitely different. Did you like, by the time you left, did you feel like this was not, I mean, I'm sure it was a very different company, but tell me a little bit about that change. When I joined in 2011, you're right. It was a very small startup and super exciting place where everybody had some very unique talents about them. I was sitting next to someone who was like very influential in C++ uh, and someone who was like uh, like a semi-professional chess champion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very interesting to see the kind of interesting talent that came together at that time to work at Meta. Um, Facebook, it's, it's hard for me to go back and forth. So this. <laughs> I, I call it Facebook for the first nine years of my career there and then Meta yeah. for the last year. So it's, it's still a challenge for me to get over that. Fair, fair. Uh, but over time, you definitely saw like one thing Facebook did really well was to kind of keep the, the small team culture going. Mm -hmm. So teams are still pretty tiny, like four or five people. Now there are grouped of come together as larger teams, but the bottoms of culture and the way that roadmaps came together and people planned, I think was mostly maintained uh, during my time there. Definitely the, the detail part of it, it was, it was, a, it was very large uh, and grown many, many times and multiples over that. But overall, I had a great time there and I really enjoyed the colleagues that I met over, the, over those years. Did you like, so I've had on the show uh, Bobbin, Costas, and Sam, all who were at Meta, mostly in the cryptography, like Libra project. You were also working there. So I kind of want to understand, I mean, like a bunch of those, two of those folks went on to, to do Mistin yeah. with, I know a lot of the folks from that, that crew. So tell me a little bit about like, what was that original group like and how did it split off? Yeah. Um, so Facebook was was a really forward thing coming at the time. They invested a, a ton in terms of bringing together talent across so many different domains, um, cryptography, languages, distributed computing, consensus, um, a lot of talent. And the way that it was kind of assembled was into different organizations. There was the engineering organization that focused on how do we build um, the blockchain? How do we scale things? How do we deploy this infrastructure? Uh, and then there was also other folks that worked on, on languages and research. And so I think, you know, there were diff there not the organization was pretty large. I think it was more than a hundred people uh, working on also we had a wallet infrastructure team as well. Um, mm -hmm. So my focus was I started from the team, worked on consensus protocols, did a bunch of research in the space to understand what what direction we wanted to move in. We ultimately ended up picking up hot stuff as the first kind of consensus protocol we'd work on. Yeah, yeah. And over time, I became the, the lead of the blockchain space, um, kind of helping us on how we integrate move with with DM. How do we um, work on the custody side of solutions with respect to what our wallet infrastructure was doing and the ecosystem projects around it? And we had a great team of, of 30 plus people that was, that was working in that space. A lot of those folks, uh, we were fortunate to have come with us, uh, work with us at Aptos Labs. Yeah, wait, isn't Itai an author there? Yes, Itai Ibrahim is also a co-author on the paper. Okay. We work closely with Malfan, Tai, and Dahlia on the pacemaker improvements for liveness. Um, but, but, you know, Hofstra was this interesting theoretical paper. Uh, it did not have the practical applications uh, into how you would make it work in the system. We took the kind of core genesis of the three-phase protocol, the separation of safety and liveness, and then evolved it into something that we think was, was pretty meaningful to support two steps instead of three steps uh, with respect to consensus, making it much more faster. And also the idea of an active leader 
as opposed to a passive pacemaker. So in, in hot stuff, the original paper was designed to wait for timeouts, uh, long exponentially increasing timeouts, which would which would take a very long time before you kind of get back to a system that works. Uh, and we, you know, for obviously that's not going to work well in a practical context. We took the, uh, the approach to make it more an active pacemaker where nodes synchronized and because of synchronization, they can actually recover much faster from failure. They can uh, make much more progress with respect to liveness uh, and, and support a more practical running system. And, and what we saw actually, which was, which was cool, is that others have adopted some of this work. Mm. So uh, Flow Blockchain, for instance, has adopted both, both, of these, uh, both of these primitives. I don't think they have the leader reputation that we have yet. Leader reputation is a really cool primitive where as you progress in your, your usage of the blockchain, the validators that, that run the software are going to be on, putting their reputations on chain with respect to the votes, the fact that they were able to successfully commit blocks as leaders. And we use this information to then bias towards those nodes that have done well mm. and support that as well with rewards uh, with respect to our proof of stake network. That's what you're doing today. That's what with, we're doing today. With like Aptos. Okay, okay. On the consensus front. Yeah, we've also taken that a step further. So we've, you know, I, I don't know if it's a good time to dive into it now, but we've, we've been also um, working on the next, next phase of our consensus protocol. So the way we think about it is very much an iterative process. We started off with the kind of basic hot stuff. We iterated to our first um, deployment that improves the liveness uh, areas quite a bit with respect to responsiveness. And then um, we had our leader reputation on top of that. And more recently, we've done something called Quorum Star, which is the first production grade implementation of um, the Narwhal Tusk papers. And so mm. there's a there's a line of research that which is this Tusk Narwhal and Tusk. So there's a there's a yeah, yeah. there's a research paper that Brody uh, Sasha from Aptos Labs have been working on in collaboration with others, uh, which talks about the idea that separating the data dissemination phase from consensus is is very important for scalability. And so. Mm. It's great as a research paper. There's a cool prototype implementation out about it, but we wanted to take that prototype again and turn it into something that was much more practical and applicable to real life systems. And so our first implementation of that called the Quorum Store actually has been tested uh, right now with our node operators in what we call the preview nets um, and, and achieving pretty, pretty fantastic results with that. And so our, our goal is really how do we keep marching this technology forward? We know that technologies continue to evolve over time. The goal of Aptos is when we think about this space, it's so young, it's so early. Uh, it's not in a phase where things are so matured, where products are very similar in, in spirit. Like you, know, you think about Postgres or MySQL, they are different products and they have some differentiators, but in by and large, you know, they, a lot of the features are pretty much interchangeable between those things. Mm. Same thing with cloud. You can think about AWS and Google and Azure as being, you know, they have differentiating services they offer and the support is different, but by and large, they offer a large fleet of machines. They offer some serverless infrastructure that's applicable for building on top of. And, you know, blockchain is not anywhere near that maturity phase right now. We're at the early, early phases where technology is being experimented with, play with. And so for us, upgradability is super important. How do we think about a technology stack that can keep moving forward over time until we get to that maturity point, until users can kind of see less differentiating between the products because they're all pretty high performant and, and um, support great user experiences. Uh, I want to go back a little bit to the sort of the meta crew. Sure. Um, so what we've, you've shared a little bit about like the consensus side of things. So that's like running with hot stuff and adding these new ideas into it. But yeah, I want to also talk about Move because you've mentioned Move a few times and I had Sam on the show from Mistin who talked about Move. Like Move was developed in order to be kind of the script or the like the language for some new blockchains kind of to replace solidity, right? 
originally? I think, I don't know if it's designed to replace, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think we we're trying to replace anything at the time. I think okay. we were trying okay, to think okay. about, you know, when we think back of the history in 2018, it was more about Meta has billions of people that come to it every day. And thinking towards that scale compared to what the industry is and was at 2018, where you have maybe a couple hundred or at that time, probably tens of thousands of users that are excited about blockchain. How do we take that and, you know, add orders of magnitude of people to it? And that's not just developers, but those are users. And, and what would need to be done to make that experience particularly safe and also bring time from, from development to production down uh, mm -hmm. to make the industry move quickly. And I think Move is the answer to that, our answer to it, which was a new programming language, which would make it harder for people to make mistakes that would support things like formal verification that would be designed from the ground up to, to be um, resilient to denial of service attacks. All those things came together in the Move language. And maybe most important of all those factors, a language in which we could iterate and move on very quickly. Mm -hmm. Solidity, you know, is a great community around it. And that's a, both an advantage and a disadvantage. Um, it has, as you know, lots of great developers, but at the same time, the language can't evolve as quickly. And with Move, it's something that we felt was designed also to, to be upgradable, uh, also to add some new features. And we've added quite a few, even in the recent you know, months and, and of course years uh, with respect to it. And we continue to expect to do so going in the future. The thing is, if Sam's at Miston, and he, I mean, I know that he's still quite active on it. Like, is it the two teams are contributing towards the same language or are there others as well? There actually been more, this is something that's a little surprising maybe to folks, but there's been more than 300 unique contributors to move over the years. Okay. And, you know, while there are definitely, you know, some large contributors in, in Aptos and in Mistin and um, others like Zero L, Starcoin, um, you know, we do see community support for this project, both and also in academia. I think academia mm -hmm. also regards it as a they very interesting it. place to play with it, yeah. And and we expect that to change over time. We've also heard expressions of, of interest from Solana, from Near, and from other blockchains that are thinking about Move as a different gateway into their blockchain. And that's that's also something that excites us a lot. Have you ever looked around at other, I mean, obviously you're familiar with Solidity and stuff, but like, would there ever be, I guess it would just be compilers, but like, would you... Or would the Move community also want to interact or connect to any of the other languages out there? Like I'm thinking stuff like, I mean, especially right now we're dealing with like the ZK DSL land explosion. Maybe maybe that's too far off. But like, yeah, I mean, you have Ink over at Polkadot. You have Solidity, which is really well understood. I don't know. What's the Solana's using Rust, I guess. That's right. So like, yeah, can you compile from Rust to Move? I, I think there's been a lot of efforts to to try to make compatibility support from moving to and from. Uh, I know our team, uh, Wolfgang and Runtian and others have worked a lot on that space. And how do you think about compiling or transpiling from Solidity to, to move or being able to just kind of support even the EVM bytecodes in, in a move compatible way and vice versa as well. Mm -hmm. um, although I think right now, you know, all our, all, a lot of our resources are tied up in just, you know, supporting Move in a really good way for Aptos. Um, okay. It's something that we do think about. And our, our team is excited to support in the future and also help it, willing to help support others who are made, wanting to make that happen. Cool. Okay, so, so far we've covered consensus and some of the unique points using the language Move. But Move is the language that you would write programs for Aptos in, right? That's correct. You're not using Move to build the blockchain. Um, Are you actually? Uh, I, I actually, I, I think you could you could argue that's the case for us. Oh, really? And I think that's a big part of our upgrade, upgradable story. So definitely, a lot of our validator code is written in Rust. That's for sure. Okay, okay. 
But one thing that makes us upgradable is the fact that we use move modules to determine the state of the blockchain as well. So oh. we have on-chain governance where people can vote for different proposals. And a proposal might be, for instance, upgrade our consensus protocol from kind of current hot stuff to hot stuff plus our quorum store. And it's something that we actually have done in the past. And, and when that vote happens, there's a trigger on-chain, uh, on-chain configuration that flips. And now all the validators that sync up to the current state of the blockchain are understanding that now they should use quorum store technology plus op stuff going forward. And this is a way that allows us to do upgradability in a very seamless fashion without any disruption to their users. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So it is kind of on both both ends. It's like one would use it to write on top if you ever built anything on top. And also you're using it somewhere under the hood. That's right. I mean, even our staking contracts are written using Move. Oh. We try our best to use Move because that way it allows us to upgrade these these different contracts or user primitives in, in a very seamless way. Interesting. It's much more flexible to write anything you want to do in Rust, but when you can use Move to do it, it allows us that upgradability with respect to on-chain governance and with respect to contract upgrades. And that's really, really fascinating for mm. our developers and for our, our community in general. Cool, cool. What are other kind of dimensions that you would say, like you're doing experiments or you're creating something somewhat new from what, like the, audi the audience of the show We've heard in detail how like Ethereum works and we've done episodes on Solana and on Nier and on Polkadot and on Cosmos. So yeah, what else, like when you're kind of going to an engineering community, like a DAP developer community, what are you offering them that really like changes, yeah, the offerings? I mean, obviously there's the language, there's some stuff going under the hood, but yeah, tell us more. So definitely language is a big component. We think that that will help you get faster time to production. And that's meaningful for developers. Obviously today there's a huge amount of challenges with respect to how do you audit the code and get it, get it ready. And if there's fewer things to audit, if you can take the advantage of the move prover and how it supports form verification around certain aspects and semantics of your programs, that's a huge important factor. We think about the user experience as well. So many blockchains today don't have even simple things like key rotation. And Aptos not only supports key rotation, but it supports key rotation that's controlled by smart contracts that allows you to support things like hybrid custodial solutions. Imagine a world where as a smart contract platform, you have a way to rotate your key, but only under certain constraints, only when you have not used the blockchain for a period of time, like six months or a year. So most of the time you have full control of your account. You, no one can touch it except for with your private key. Mm -hmm. But when you haven't used it for a while, for instance, you've lost your key, another key that's held by a custodian would be able to rotate it on your behalf, but only the, only with those points and provably yeah. on the blockchain at a certain time audited. So we think that the user experience challenges of key management are things that we can push as far down to the L1 stack and support mm -hmm. uh, with what auditability and with transparency um, and with kind of help from others. Uh, you could be a friend, it could be a custodian of sorts. That's very meaningful. The other thing that's very meaningful, of course, is this technology stack needs to scale. And when I say that, every single blockchain combined in the world can support what a single MySQL server can do. And what we've done at Aptos is think about how do we design a system that can support scaling up the resources uh, for larger workloads, the same way that cloud infrastructure does for your applications like Netflix or, or Google. Those, those are powered by you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of MySQL servers, uh, when you think about infrastructure like Instagram and Meta. And that kind of gives you an idea of how far away we are in industry from where we need to be and where we are. Mm 
Mm. And so when the Aptos stack was designed, it has many different phases of transaction execution. It has a data dissemination phase. It has an ordering phase. It has a parallel execution phase. And then what we, I think we talked a little bit earlier, we have the ability to batch updates, which is much more efficient uh, from a resource perspective. And then finally a uh, proof generation phase. And by creating these different phases of computation that are, that are logical, we can not only allow each of these phases to work independently, we can allow the, the parallelization of these, these phases. So data dissemination is something done with Quorum Store where we can push data to as many validators as we can in the network and get what we call the proof of availability uh, from them. And then those can be then ordered uh, without having to pass that data around and support the parallel execution phase and then so on and so forth. And so if you think about today, we have a, validator, a single validator with CPUs and memory and SSDs and, and network bandwidth. Those things will grow. We'll have multiple processors. We'll have multiple SSDs. And then over time, what we'll have is validators that operate low latency clusters of machines. And those will be able to scale up their resources and support you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions per second and growing to the needs of what Web3 need, uh, needs to support the largest applications in the world. Hmm. And I think that is something that's pretty unique about the Optus infrastructure. So supporting it from a programming languages perspective, uh, a user experience perspective around custody and pushing those primitives on chain, and then finally kind of supporting the fastest, you know, decentralized database and scalable data, decentralized database in the world. That's our goals. Why is it fastest? Everyone can think about fastest in different ways. Yeah, yeah. We think about it in terms of finality and kind of indisputable <laughs> finality, not probabilistic. Um, so for that, we started off with a BFT-based protocol, a Byzantine fault tolerant protocol in Hot Stuff. And Hot Stuff we took from the three uh, round trips of network latency to two round trips. That's, you know, given a, a data center might have uh, about 200 milliseconds of latency from something completely across the world. You can imagine that gets us to 400 to 500 milliseconds of finality time. Now with Quorum Store, that increases us slightly because of the time to also get the availabilities on it. Uh, but that's kind of allowed us to get you know, sub-second sub around second of latency in real-life production scenarios in mainnet. So if you look at the recent Masari report on Twitter, Aptos had, had the lowest finality time for any, any production network. Mm. And it's something that we, you know, we haven't necessarily even optimized to our fullest yet. We're excited about even driving that time further and making, it, making the blockchain accessible to real-time applications, uh, which we think would be really important for adoption of the technology stack. You sort of said, though, like, fastest can be defined in many different ways. Like, are there other blockchains that you think are fast in a different way? I'm just trying to understand what, like, if finality is, if, if it's not the only metric, what are other metrics? So some people think about, you know, either use them as intermediate metrics, like, you know, the first time someone throws a receipt of a message, it's not guaranteed to be committed to the network, but there's a good indication that it's likely going to be committed if you use kind of historical data as a measure of future performance. And... I think that there's other ways you can provide signals in the system, for instance, even the Aptos blockchain, which will give you similar metrics. So it really depends on what we're talking about. For instance, as once a transaction gets submitted uh, and a validator kind of gets this proof of availability on it, you have a guarantee that no one's going to forget this transaction and people will keep submitting it until it either gets rejected or it, it eventually gets committed. Mm -hmm. And so there are different kind of metrics in the system you can expose through this pipeline infrastructure, which is really neat such as when things have been proven to be available on top of any of the validators. There's another proof which you can provide in which the ordering phase happens. Now, you're guaranteed in which it's going to be looked at, not necessarily executed, 
in this fashion. And then you also have a phase at the very end, which says it's been executed. And here's the execution result of it verified by the validators. So there's many different kinds of metrics around finality, okay. which are interesting to provide to the users and to the developers. And they can be used for different types of use cases going forward. Um, you had sort of mentioned the key rotation. I just wondered if that was, is that all like a smart contracts or is the like account is basically the question of like, is it a form of like account abstraction as we've understood it in the Ethereum context? So account abstraction is something that we, we definitely also support in Aptos. Uh, it's a, it's a little bit of a longer discussion, but definitely around keys, you know, there's a kind of a, a way to secure an account through a key and any transaction that modifies this account has to basically be signed by that key. Mm-hmm. We also support a very flexible things here, such as multi-sig keys for accounts. Uh, we support contracts that kind of control the way the keys are managed. Okay, okay. There's a lot of flexibility here. And I think that flexibility is, is intended so that the user experience can be customized toward particular use cases, whether it's enterprise-grade infrastructure, such as something that MSafe is, or Momentum Safe is doing, one of the whether projects building on top of Aptos, or it's going to be more user-facing projects that um, large-scale custodians would build that would support kind of more generic key rotation purposes. When you mentioned sort of, you mentioned like provers, obviously like coming from the ZK land, I always think you're talking about a ZK proof prover, but I'm guessing <laughs> you're not. What kind of provers no. are they? Yeah. So thinking about the move prover is a little bit different. The idea behind it was, again, how do you get that time to market for a developer as fast as possible? And that has to do with good quality testing. And so being able to prove certain properties of your contract uh, in all possible kind of permutations and iterations formally is something that gives a lot, gives developers a lot of confidence in the, in the, in when they write their contracts. And so knowing that, for instance, uh, a balance is conserved or that certain even ratios between different types of tokens might be conserved are things that the move prover can do from an, you know, prior to deployments without the need of an auditor to kind of look at the code and make sure things are working correctly. And the more we can do to enhance that framework just reduces the need for as much auditing as, you know, there's always gonna be a need for auditing in the move, any, any smart contract space, but the more we can do kind of reduce that need and also reduce the amount of work that happens as a part of that process allows people to move their products to market more quickly. So is the prover then like a verification thing? Yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely a, something that kind of formally verifies certain properties of your contract. Okay. And so it's not, it's not a proof in the sense of like, you know, in ZK proofs, you know, you're kind of verifying. yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're, and then there's a prover. Yeah, you're proving that the calculation was done. Yeah, that was done correctly and all those fun things. Uh, it's it's more about proving the certain certain semantics about your program. Okay. It, you should really think of it as a testing tool. Is it like the Rust? Is it, is it called prover in, in Rust too? Like that, I know in Rust that like forces you to check stuff. Rust has this amazing, you know, compile time checks, yeah, which yeah. also prevent you from as many mistakes as possible. Of course, you can't you know, solve all the bugs in your code. Uh, <laughs> and it is targeted towards specifically things that are you know, around memory management, uh, which are very important. The proof is a little bit different inside of Move. It's really about application level semantics mm. and not so much about the core system semantics, which is what the Rust compiler does on your behalf. I see. Okay. Got it. But it is sort of, it is, it is like, it's a, it's a checker. It's checking to make sure the thing will work the way you want it to. Exactly. Okay. And but just happening more at the application level as opposed to the kind of core languages and system level. I do want to ask you, like, do you have any ZKPs in your system? Are you looking into adding them? Yeah, I mean I think we definitely have <laughs> You're our, on the Zero Knowledge have, podcast. I have to ask this question. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> we have quite a bit of uh, interesting cryptography in in the Aptos platform, uh, for sure. Um, 
A couple of things that are interesting is that we have uh, something called Veiled Tokens. They're kind of based on zero-knowledge range proofs, uh, specifically based on bulletproofs. Users can veil their balances and keep that hidden from folks, uh, They, but, but recipients and senders are well-known. This is kind of providing an interesting middle ground between full privacy of zero knowledge and also full transparency of a public blockchain, mm -hmm. but also intermediaries in terms of the cost. As you know, generating ZK proofs are very expensive. Uh, the verification occur very fast and there's different kinds of trade-offs between the different techniques available. But we like the idea also this veiled transaction as a way to um, find a middle ground and a hybrid between the solutions as another alternative for us. So this, it veils, it, it hides the amount. Is that correct? That's correct. But not the recipients. But then, like, is the wallet balance visible? The wallet balance is visible to the users. So then you'd see the change anyway. The recipient and the sender would know of the changes, but no one else. Okay. But, like, a block explorer would not see the, the value of the account change. That's right. A block explorer would not see it. That's oh. right. Oh. In general, are the amounts in a, in a wallet always, or, like, the amounts in accounts veiled, like, by default? Uh, so we, I don't think we've actually integrated into our wallet yet. Uh, okay. So we were still working on that technology piece, but we kind of put the core printers out there so people can build this infrastructure. And it's just one of the things that we're doing. We also support uh, a variety of different signature schemes within the, the as move primitives within Aptos. It's things like, of course, ED25519 signatures, ECDSA signatures. Mm -hmm. We support different kinds of cryptography functions. We're also supporting different types of other um, ZK proof verification, such as Groth 16 zero knowledge proofs. Um, and that will be kind of the shortest and fastest to verify. And so this kind of builds the core set of primitives that are necessary for interesting ZK applications on top of Aptos, whether it's going to be L2 chains or it's going to be just applications or even verification of these proofs coming from bridges uh, from other networks, which would be interesting as well. Mm. I want to ask you a question about the validator sets and also the governance. Like, are the validators voting or are the users voting when it comes to governance? Like, is this sort of a, you know, validators and their delegates carry a certain weight? How, how are you making that distinction? Validators always implicitly vote by running the software stack. Okay. So I just want to make, the, make sure that's very clear, right? Ooh. No matter what, like, it, it's true for all networks. It's not just true for Aptos. If the validators decide to do something, you know, they can kind of do it without permission uh, from anyone. Mm -hmm. And so that's, there's nothing different here from that perspective. But when it comes to the on-chain voting process, that's where it's token holders that are vote. And token holders could be validators, could be users with token balances, could be, you know, other parties. Anyone that has a token is allowed to vote. And the voting has certain constraints in which it can happen fast or it can happen, happen kind of more slowly over time. Say the the tokens are delegated to a validator. Would that then contribute to the? Is it sort of like the Cosmos version, where it's like the percentage of stake equals the percentage of vote? Today, token holders vote in the network. There are new staking contracts coming out that support delegation from the community, mm. and these contracts will hopefully over time support a variety of different ways for token holders to continue to vote, even in a delegated operation. And they can also choose to delegate those votes to other parties, including validators. I think that is actually how a lot of the Cosmos chains do still work. Like anyone can over, like you basically delegate your tokens, but then you can always override the vote of your validator if you want to. Like if you decide to vote, it overrides what they're voting for. But if you don't vote as a token holder who's delegated, 
whatever the validator votes for. And I mean like the, the actual vote. This is like the upgrades and the, that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah, sounds sort of similar then. It, it's also making me realize kind of what state the network is at. So you're like, there will be delegation, but not yet. So yeah, where are you guys at? So it's a great question. We launched our network in October of last year. And okay. it's been a little more than five months, five and a half months or so. Mm-hmm. Since the network's been live, we're super excited to see the amazing community come behind it. I think on launch day, more than 30 projects launched alongside us. And mm. that was super exciting to see. Today, more than 100 projects are live in network and hundreds more building. But when you say launch, do you mean testnet launch or do you mean launch launch? Oh, no, I mean mainnet launch. You're there mainnet. are lots of projects. Yeah, there are lots of okay. projects in testnet today that continue to stress our testnet in interesting and challenging ways. But yeah, more than 100 today are live in mainnet. And you're live on mainnet, but you don't have delegation yet. So that's going to be like an upgrade at some point. That's an upgrade coming soon. And so one thing that we've tried to start very early in the process is the notion of community-driven input. We have an AIP process, which really closely mirrors the EIP process, mm-hmm. where different members of the community can propose upgrades and opportunities uh, for improvement on the network. I think we're already on probably AIP 17 or 18 since we started. And many of these proposals are coming from various factions of the community that we don't know well, uh, and we love that. We love to see, I think the delegation proposal actually came from one of the validator operators for the Aptos blockchain. And it's really exciting to see them taking an interest and in, in driving this project forward in a way that you know many of us at, at the labs haven't thought of yet. Mm. So we're super excited by the community efforts and, and development in this space. I'm kind of curious, like who the community is, mostly because like right now there's, I mean, if you just look at a timeline, if anything, I think we've seen a lot of ecosystems sort of shrinking more than growing. And you have a little bit of a land grab happening where like different, like things like the new L2s or like everyone's sort of trying to, to get a chunk of an existing pie. Um, are you competing with Ethereum in a way, like you're, you're a new L1 or Solana or whatever. Like, how are you getting these developers basically to build on Aptos? I don't think of it as competition. I, I think the pie is really small right now. I think okay. you know, probably are tens of thousands of developers for all of Web3. And true. there are millions <laughs> of programmers in the world. True, true, true. So <laughs> our, our hope and our, our thought is that as we start to build out a core technology stack that provides a very scalable experience, a user-friendly experience, and one that can support the largest internet applications in the world, those developers will naturally start to move over mm. and and start to get excited about Web3 and, and Aptos in general. Do you feel though, like, because I'm thinking you're based in the Valley uh, because of some of the teams and people you mentioned and stuff, but like, are you recruiting Web2 engineers a lot into a new ecosystem? like into a whole new kind of industry? Or would you say you are kind of like meeting a lot of the engineers from other blockchain projects coming over? We've seen a combination of both. We definitely have saw a lot of projects from other blockchains that are really excited about developing with Move. They've had experiences with other languages and they're just Mm. looking for more. And they're like, wow, this is a really cool new way of thinking about data models and programmability and auditing. And we had a hackathon early on in the project in May, where we were trying to understand like what's the developer experience around Move? How ready is it for prime time? And could people be productive in it? And developers came from different Web2 companies, from other blockchains, and, and 
I think more than 50 people showed up at our office, which, which made it for a very interesting situation. And I think it was, we were meant to have like just 10 or 20 people Okay. Uh, and then coded for 36 hours. And after that, they had built some of the most amazing technology with respect to wallets and uh, games and NFT marketplaces. And many of these projects actually con continued to build with us and in an accelerator mm. program or, you know, that spanned you know, more than eight months now. That, that kind of showed us that move was a thing and it was something that people could get excited about. Uh, and, and so we've seen, and in that space, even there, we, we saw both Web2 and kind of Web3 communities coming together with respect to move and, and Aptos. And I think today we see that same excitement. We see definitely a lot of interesting projects from other blockchains, which as you mentioned, may not be doing so well or looking for something new, uh, come over to Aptos and, and get excited about the technology stack, the team, and the way that we're advancing things very, very quickly. Uh, in a short period of time. Mm. And we also see that a lot of these large internet companies, which have stayed out of the space, mainly due to technology not being ready or not you know, sure about some of the teams there and the organizations, uh, getting excited about Aptos and, and kind of what we bring and knowing that our history with respect to kind of building production-grade software, enterprise-grade software at, at the largest internet companies in the world is something that they can trust going forward. So mm. we do see interest from both those communities and we're really excited to, to support all their applications. Do you feel like there's a focus in, like, is there a particular type of, I don't know if you'd call it industry segment, because I don't know if these things are big enough yet, but like, are you focused on NFTs? Are you focused on games? Are you focused on all? I've, I've heard from thinkers that there might be a specialization in some of the other L1s or in some of the L2s. So I'm curious, like, yeah, if you sort of have a focus for the part of the market you want to tackle. We're excited about technology and being kind of this great layer to build on top of. Again, if, if you have amazing user experiences, if you have great finality times, if you have super, really strong scalability in a great programming environment, I think you can support all use cases extremely well. Mm. That being said, we do focus on certain use cases that we think are most likely to get adoption quicker, kind of moving from broader internet-based applications to supporting Web3 utility. And those kind of four areas are going to be gaming, social, finance, and media and, and entertainment more broadly. Hmm. So those are the ones that we have interesting partnerships with. Um, we'd happy to talk about those as well. Then uh, the areas that we, we really spend a lot of our time focusing on building infrastructure for specifically. Are you still working with Meta? Like when you talk about partnerships and then you say sort of entertainment and I'm thinking like, is this the VR thing? <laughs> so like, do you have ties still to the org? Having worked at Meta for 10 years, I, I have lots of great relationships with many different people there. We don't have any formal relationship with Meta at this time. Okay. Um, although we continue to keep in contact with, with many of our colleagues and are excited about some of the initiatives we could work on in the future. Okay. But that's not when you talk about sort of partnerships, you're not saying like you're going to be the NFT provider for Meta or something like that. Uh, we can't comment on that no. at this time. I but... think actually they're working with Polygon, aren't they? Instagram. Um, so I think actually recently they did announce um, they're going to take a pause on Web3 efforts for a bit. Oh. Yeah. So that's that's something that's, you know, mm. maybe not great for the industry overall. But, you know, I think in the future we still have, there's, there's so many things that could happen in the future. I mean, I think they're mm. also working on a new decentralized platform for Twitter, uh, Twitter-like product as well. So we'll keep an eye on the space. We'll keep in contact with some of our friends there as well. This definitely brings up the question about like the state of the market. Like w when did when did Optos start? You sort of mentioned 2018, but then you were still at Meta or Facebook. But yeah, when did like the company start? 
So 2018 is when we started building out the technology stack. Move was being okay. built, DM was being built. We had this great team of folks that were all working in tandem and, a, and an interesting association of like industry members from some of the largest companies in the world that were excited yeah. about this new technology stack. In 2021, it was kind of clear that this was not going to launch within Meta. Mm -hmm. And in end of December, 2021 is when my co-founder Mo Moshek and I, who had, Mo had worked on the wallet side of uh, the world and I had worked on the blockchain side and started up Aptos. And mm -hmm. many, as I mentioned, of the former coworkers at uh, DM yeah, joined us and, and continued to push the technology stack forward. Was there any other companies that came out of that actually? So there's Mistin, Aptos, is there another one? Linera is another one. Okay. Uh, also Lightspark. Huh. There are quite a few. Interesting. Same group. All the same group, yeah. Okay. Okay, so 2021, late 2021. Yeah, for us, it was, Aptos was, was um, started in December of 2021. So this is like top. <laughs> this <laughs> is like, it is exciting. Everyone is very excited. That continues until end of February when, you know, stability in, in Europe, as we've known it, has changed. And then it gets progressively worse as 2022 continues, as we all know. So, yeah, how does it, like, being a company that sort of emerges at this time, are you feeling that? Like, do you worry about it? Have you had any sort of pushback from maybe, like, people who were really excited before and now are nervous? Definitely 2022 has been an interesting year for our industry. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think it's re-energized us so much. <laughs> we're, we're an early startup in this space from that perspective. Obviously, our technology has been built for many, many years and evolved over that time frame. So from a technology perspective, we're pretty, we're not mature, but we're definitely in a, in a good space mm -hmm. uh, and continuing to be a place we can be very iterative and uh, move very quickly. From a company standpoint, it's been very interesting to see in the short period of time, you know, the the movements of the industry and, and how that affects us. But it's been really positive, I think, for us internally. We've just been very focused, heads down, kind of trying to ignore as much of the noise as possible and saying, look, some of the greatest companies were built during these, these times mm. of hardship in the past. You know, in 2009, when the you know previous kind of crisis, 2008, when the banking crisis has happened, amazing products and amazing technology was developed. And I think this is a great opportunity for us in our, our time, in our industry, to, to do the same thing, where people that are very serious and very focused can generate amazing technology. And when you know this thing turns around at some point and people get really interested in the tech, uh, we'll be there to support them with um, you know, something that scales to their use cases and their needs. You're a Silicon Valley company, right? Well, a lot, yeah. So a lot of us, you know, come from Silicon Valley, are, are living in Silicon Valley. Definitely, a lot of us, as I mentioned, came from our former project at, at DM. Yeah. And so, therefore, there is a good mass and, and support of us that are in the Bay Area. But we have folks all over the world, in New York and in Florida, in London, in um, Israel, as well as Canada, and even in Asia. Hmm. So we do think of ourselves as very much a global company. Do you feel like the crypto scene? There is sort of this West Coast scene. And you sort of mentioned a few teams that I would like kind of associate with it. Solana is very, very much from there. I'm curious to see, like, what what is your perspective on the larger ecosystem? Like, do you see sort of still the center of innovation as being from the Valley? Or do you see it, like, moving to different parts of the world? And maybe this is, like, harsh because you're there. So you have to say it's there. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, we, we definitely see talent all across the world. And we've, we were excited about working with our colleagues everywhere. I think for us, we just have a core group of folks that came together in Silicon Valley because of our history with DM and Meta. Mm. And, you know, it's something that is very special to us as well. We, we think that, you know, being in person during the pandemic and during our, our launch, you know, we call it death march sometimes, uh, <laughs> was super, it was very critical for us to, uh, to getting, to getting to market quickly. And yeah. I don't think anyone's been able to launch a blockchain, you know, within 10 months of starting a company and, and that's also gonna... come live with 30 different projects at the same time. Mm. So that's something that we're really proud of. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that we had an amazing group of folks, uh, mm. you know, in person. And many of those folks flew in from across the world to be with us and help us to get there. It, it's one of our you know, core advantages as a team. It's it's so different because, I mean, a lot of teams that I know, my my teams are all like remote. But yeah, it's it's you kind of have that because you all came from one org, you have a little bit of that chance to still meet up and see each other in offices. I am still wondering, like going forward, I mean, I think from what you've said, I can hear that you have a relatively, like you have a pretty rosy outlook that there will be like, it will rise again. But what must it be to be, because you're coming from like more the traditional American tech hub and given the kind of onslaught of regulation, like, yeah, how are you how are you managing that? How are you thinking about it? Something we're really excited about is when we thought about the network from, from day one, there was a, a focus on doing things in as a regulatory compliant way as possible. So no token sales, um, as much sensitization as, as possible throughout the technology stack and the processes in which we manage um, the code commits. And helping to invite as many people to commit, participate in the community as possible is something that mm-hmm. we really focused on. And we think that that's something that you know everyone will will also adopt over time when it comes to developing layer one, layer two, or other types of blockchain based solutions. So that's an area that we think is is something that you know is actually a competitive advantage for us, and we expect the industry to to also do in the future. I, I think one of the arguments that we're seeing a lot of like the U.S. companies have, which is that to be compliant is so challenging because the rules have not been declared how do you navigate that well we try to again do things that we feel are going to focus on the utility of the blockchain specifically Mm. as opposed to other aspects we you know tokens are used for um, paying network fees and transaction fees they are used for staking they're used for governance those are the things that are important for operation of a network the decentralization of the network across many different countries where validators are operating in 22 countries around the world, uh, over more than 18 different kind of cloud providers, 73 different unique operators at launch. Those are the things I think that really help a network to start off and, and grow its decentralization over time. Do you ever imagine, like, because there is there is sort of a, uh, a way that some ecosystems have decentralized by almost like creating secondary companies to build the infrastructure or like, or wind down the original one? Is that sort of, is that a plan or is that something that you're thinking about? Or do you see it more like this is a technology company that will also exist alongside this network forever? The Aptos Foundation was was launched as well prior to the mainnet going live and is continuing to grow in size and responsibility. The Aptos Foundation focuses on the growth and decentralization of the protocol Aptos Labs is a contributor to the protocol okay. and also continues to build products over time 
as well. So developing a wallet, an indexer, analytics infrastructure, and over time, potentially products. Oh, okay. And do you think you could have a secondary one? Like, do you ever imagine like having another org? <laughs> I, maybe it's too weird and strategic, but maybe that's not even something that most teams are thinking about. But yeah, I just wondered, like, when you talk about decentralization, like if it's, yeah, I wonder if you're also thinking like maybe another company completely builds it. That's a good question. I think we've seen from the community standpoint, so many different projects building in this space. And the more that build externally, the outside of Aptos Labs, the Aptos Labs is an influencer and contributor to the, to the overall protocol mm. and to the growth of the network. And we're excited by that. We're excited about taking less responsibility. And we're super uh, encouraging and grateful for those that are contributing to AIPs, those that are committing code. The Aptos stack is actually, I think, 450 unique contributors. Mm. Uh, and it's not just a small team of folks that work here that do it. It's really people around the world who are excited about the protocol and what it can do for their particular use cases. Nice. Well, Avery, thank you so much for sharing with me this sort of story of Aptos, explaining kind of some of the tech stack, how the community is, where you're at as a project. What's next? Is there something that folks should look forward to? Upgrades, lots of upgrades coming forward. We <laughs> okay. deployed our 1.2 upgrade in February, uh, One point. Three is probably coming out in April or May. And so our plan and our cadence is really to keep deploying technology out to market as soon as possible. Things like move objects and uh, resource groups, which allow people and programmers to be able to bunch their logical objects together in a way that's going to support high performance uh, throughput is something that's exciting to us. We'll continue to see gas fees coming down, by the way, uh, very soon. I think we've... Mm. I think in the 1.3 upgrade, you'll start to see some of that. Uh, I think 100x lower costs in the execution side, which will be very exciting for developers and enable a whole bunch of different use cases. So we keep listening to developer feedback. We see changes coming forward from the community and from our, our team specifically. And we're going to keep pushing forward in that direction. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, you'll start to see amazing you know, applications being built on top of Aptos. Uh, we have a couple that are, are very exciting that I would like to highlight. So one of them is Chingari. It's a... Web3 social media app um, with 45 million monthly active users Whoa. and over 2 million accounts. They were building on other chain, another chain in the past, and now they've, they've really been excited by the Aptos technology stack and, and are switching uh, and going to bring all the users with them. And we're going to work together to hopefully scale that up even by an order of magnitude uh, in the future, which is really exciting. And so everyone's looking for that use case in Web3 where it gets people to you know, get excited about utility being brought to the space and something that they would use on a daily basis or, you know, even a, even a weekly basis with in orders of millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions. Mm. And so we think Chingari is definitely one of those possibilities. Uh, another one is Grand Saga Unlimited, which is a game coming out of uh, Mpixel, a AAA gaming studio out of South Korea. Ooh. They're going to be launching their game soon. They did an amazing demo at GDC last week. Uh, with a private beta, and they've they've had millions of players in their in some of the previous versions of the game that they built, and again, being able to see what Aptos can do to support their needs and use cases, they want to put everything on chain and do every all the gameplay and design yeah. uh, within a within the network, wow. which is really exciting and, and offer a new experience to users. And these are just a couple of the kind of flagship projects that are building, and we think that have tremendous potential um, to take advantage of our technology stack and um, demonstrate what Web three can do and in terms of bringing utility towards a mainstream audience. How would you put an entire, like if it's a real video game, 
Um, Because, I mean, I think there's already, like, a really good mapping on, like, how you could do marketplaces for, like, if you do marketplaces for things that kind of don't matter but add status, like skins, it seems to work. But if you do game, if you do marketplaces for, like, in-game items, then you end up with, like, oligarchs just owning it. It's, like, not fair, you know? So, like, (laughs) so, like, how... How would you put a full game on chain, actually? So they've been thinking, Netflix has been thinking about this problem pretty deeply. There's something called proof of play, which you could take a look at, uh, and okay. how items can be distributed to users in a in a fair fashion and verifiable on chain. Um, but yeah, it's, it it definitely raises interesting questions around token economies uh, yeah. for for video game play, which is so much more flexible than say a boring blockchain that has a utility token. Totally, that's cool. Well, yeah. Thanks again for sharing all of this with us. Um, we'll do some, I mean, I'll do a little bit more research into that. You've got me thinking that I should do an episode actually on blockchain gaming uh, after this. But uh, yeah, thanks so much, Avery. It was my pleasure, Anna. All right. And I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Rachel, Henrik, and Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.